the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the third day, Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing David King Engineering here in Portland. Coming up, we have a uh, the second half of my interview with Mark Paoletta, co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas and his own words, who, by the way, did not recuse himself in today's earlier uh, hearing on whether or not uh, President Trump's name will appear on the Colorado ballot. We'll also talk with Phyllis Bennett, director of Inspiring Women Northwest on the Ignite Women's Conference. This year's theme, All In Living with Grace-Filled Holiness. That's coming up on Saturday, March the 9th at Village Church. We'll tell you all the important details and how to register. We'll also talk with Jason Williams, director of Taxpayers Association of Oregon. He's also with uh, OregonWatchdog.com. We'll talk about the 35-day legislative session, the proposed statewide property tax, and much more. That's coming up later in today's program as well. Well, according to special counsel Robert Hur's report on President Biden's mishandling of classified documents released today, the president could not remember key details such as when he was vice president during interviews with investigators. Her has been investigating Biden's improper retention of classified records since last year. The papers included classified documents about military and foreign policy in Afghanistan, among other national security and foreign policy records, which her said implicated sensitive intelligence sources and methods. He announced he would not seek criminal charges against Biden. However, the report also contains an eye opening portion on how Biden struggled to remember when he served as vice president in the Obama administration while being interviewed for the investigation. Additionally, Hur's office believed Biden's lawyers would use those limitations uh, in his recall if he he went to trial. In his interview with uh, our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse, the report states. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended, if it was 2013 when Uh, Did I stop being vice president, he asked, and forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began in 2009, am I still vice president, he asked. He did not remember even within several years when his son, Bo, died, the report continued. And his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. Among other things, he mistakenly said he had a real difference of opinion with General Carl Eikenberry, when in fact Eikenberry was an ally whom Mr. Biden cited approvingly in his Thanksgiving memo to President Obama. In a case where the government must prove that Mr. Obama, or rather Mr. Biden, knew that he had possession of the classified Afghanistan documents after the vice presidency and chose to keep those documents, knowing he was violating the law, we expect that at trial his attorneys would emphasize these limitations in his recall. The report stated, and while Biden will not face charges, her said his investigation uncovered evidence that Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials after his vice presidency when he was a private citizen and apparently cognizant of his answer of his actions. Her said FBI agents recovered the materials from garages, offices and basement den 
in Mr. Biden's Wilmington, Delaware home. He added that the evidence does not establish Mr. Biden's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The White House did not immediately respond, but the president since has spoken on the subject overlooking um, the fact that he was referred to as an old man who had serious memory problems. In other news, the Supreme Court justices who heard arguments today on whether Donald Trump should be kicked off the 2024 Colorado ballot appeared to be leaning in favor of the former president, according to uh, observers. Justice Kagan questioned whether one state should decide on behalf of the entire country who should be president. Justice Roberts warned that if the court ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, some states would interpret that to mean that uh, they could kick off Democrats or Republicans from the ballot. Justice Jackson challenged lawyer Jason Murray's assertion that there was no ambiguity in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Chief Justice Roberts, he warned of the daunting consequences should only a handful of states decide the president of the United States. Per Bream, a closed door um, a conference vote on the decision will come in the next few days. The decision may come in a matter of days or perhaps months. In other news, he wasn't on the ballot, but Donald Trump came up a winner in Nevada's state-run uh, Republican presidential primary. On Thursday, the former president's name was listed in the Nevada GOP caucuses, where he um, landed an outright victory. Trump's absence from the primary ballot wasn't enough to provide a path to victory for Nikki Haley, the former president's last remaining major rival for the 2024 Republican nomination. And President Biden claimed he spoke with the late German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, who died in 2017, only he spoke to him in 2021 while recalling past conversations during a fundraising event on Wednesday. The gaffe marks his second of the week. Biden attended three campaign reception events in New York Wednesday afternoon, according to his schedule. At his second and third events, he told donors about conversations surrounding the January 6, 2021, at his first group of seven meeting as president, which took place in England in June of that year. The president said that the late German Chancellor Cole asked him what he would say if he learned 1,000 people stormed the British Parliament in an attempt to deny the next prime minister from taking office. The annual meeting was not attended by Cole as he had been dead for four years, but by former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. The gaffe was uh, on Thursday is similar to the one Biden made on Sunday after he claimed he spoke with Francois Mitterrand, a French president who died in 1996 at the same G7 meeting. Former President Trump has recommended North Carolina GOP chair Michael Watley replace RNC chair Ronna McDaniel, who says she's going to retire uh, soon after the South Carolina primary. A source familiar with the uh, uh, conversation said there will be a change in leadership in the Republican National Committee after February 24th, the South Carolina primary. The sources said that Trump is pushing for Watley to replace McDaniel specifically because he was so powerful on election fraud in 2020. Watley has served as the North Carolina GOP chair since 2019. He also serves as the general counsel for the Republican National Committee. By the way, Trump won North Carolina in 2020. Well, 22 states raised, are raising the alarm on Biden's natural gas crackdown, hinting at potential legal action. A coalition of 22 Republican state attorneys general are warning President Biden that his recent moratorium on liquefied natural gas or LNG export projects is unlawful. The top state officials, led by Kansas Attorney General Chris Kobach, penned a letter to Biden and Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm listing a series of federal statutes. The administration's recent actions allegedly violate and urging the pair to immediately reverse course. We'll see what actually 
happens. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. Lots of guests coming up later in the program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Coming up later, the second half of my conversation with Mark Paoletta, co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. And we'll talk with Phyllis Bennett, director of Inspiring Women Northwest, on the Ignite Women's Conference coming up on Saturday, March the 9th at Village Church. For all the important details, lovingpeoplefully.org slash ignite hyphen conference hyphen 2024. You can also go to the website for that information. Well, long-shot Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson has suspended her presidential campaign. Williamson announced that she will no longer be pursuing the White House in 2024 in a video posted on X Wednesday night. I read uh, I read a quote the other day. Actually, I read a quote the other day that said, then sunsets are proof that endings can be beautiful, too. And so today, even though it is time to suspend my campaign for the presidency, I do want to see the beauty. And I want all of you to who so incredibly supported me on this journey as donors, as supporters, as team and as volunteers to see the beauty, too. She opened the video saying Williamson then went on to list what she felt she accomplished and brought attention uh, to during her campaign and encouraged those who supported her to continue to have hope. Her suspension comes as the 2024 presidential matchup begins to solidify on both sides. New Gallup surveys spell a lot more trouble for Joe Biden. There's more trouble there as Democrats are struggling with very key demographics that helped elect him in 2020. Democrats advantage among non-Hispanic black voters is known to um, uh, is down rather to its lowest level since 1999, while the margin with Hispanic voters is now at its lowest level since 2011, down to just 12 points. But it's not just minority voters that Democrats are struggling with. They're also losing ground with young voters, according to the Gallup poll. Their advantage with 18 to 29 year old voters is now just eight points. That's the lowest level since 2005. And while the Democrats and Biden are struggling in the polls as a whole, Perhaps no one has struggled, has suffered rather a bigger polling crisis than the vice president. Vice President Harris, according to a new poll, NBC survey, says she now has a favorability rating of only 28 percent compared to 53 percent who have a negative view of her. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testified about why financial institutions flagged Bible purchases. Testifying in front of the House Financial Services Committee on Tuesday, the Treasury Secretary was cornered about why her agency demanded private banking institutions flag and turn over data on purchases made by Americans without a warrant. More specifically, at... um, Uh, at the request of information regarding their purchases of things like the Bible. Uh, Kabbalah's Bass Pro Shop was also flagged purchases of religious texts, as I mentioned, including the Bible. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declined a ceasefire. Rather, he wants the full destruction of Hamas to assure the, the survival of Israel in the future. The prime minister rejected Hamas ceasefire demands on Wednesday, vowing to fight on until absolute victory. Netanyahu made the comments shortly after meeting with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who arrived in the region on Tuesday night after meeting with leaders of Gutter, the um, of Gutter and Egypt in the most serious diplomatic push of the war to secure a ceasefire agreement. Through these diplomatic channels, Hamas presented Israel with a proposal for a three-stage ceasefire that would last 
for 135 days and culminate in the end of the war, surrounding, uh, surrendering rather to Hamas's delusional demands that we heard now not only won't lead to freeing the captives, it will just invite another massacre, Netanyahu said, also saying no. Meanwhile, a senior commander of an Iran-backed militia has been killed in a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad. The leader of the uh, group, Kateb Hezbollah, and two of his uh, guards were in a vehicle when it was targeted in the east of the Iraqi capital. All three of them died. The Pentagon said the militia leader was responsible for directing attacks on American forces in the region. The U.S. has linked the militia to a drone attack in Jordan that killed three U.S. troops that last month. In the wake of that attack, uh, Kateb Hezbollah said it was suspending attacks on American troops to prevent embarrassment to the Iraqi government. Interesting perspective. Five Marines have died in a helico- helicopter crash. The sketchy news reports from yesterday uh, morning were ominous, and today's news sadly, tragically, confirms them. Five U.S. Marines from Air Station uh, Miramar were killed late Tuesday night when their CH-53E Super Stallion rotary wing craft went down in bad weather in the mountains east of San Diego. The Marines were returning from the training of Creech Air Force Base northwest of uh, Las Vegas. It is with a heavy heart and profound sadness that I share the loss of five outstanding Marines from 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing and the Flying Tigers, said Major General Michael Borgschult, commander of the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing, in a statement. We've said it before and we'll say it again. Training for war is deadly business, and though our warriors understand these risks... We're no less grief-stricken by the loss, whether Marines in the mountains of South, uh, South Carolina, or Southern California, rather, or Navy SEALs in the Arabian Sea. To the families of our fallen Marines, he went on to say, we send our deepest condolences and commit to ensuring your support and care during this incredibly difficult time. The young Chiefs fan is suing for defamation. Deep spend better hope for a good lawyer because the left media rag is going to need him. The uh, sports commentary uh, site has been uh, hit with a lawsuit on behalf of the young Kansas City Chiefs fan who it defamed for allegedly appearing in blackface at the Chiefs Raiders game Thanksgiving weekend. As Nate Jackson noted at the time, the Deadspin reporter in question decided to bully a young kid with a racist screed based on a misleading screenshot at the top of the article showing the fan turned uh, uh, sideways to show only the black paint on his face under the chief headdress. This is despite a view of the boy's face. Uh, full face showing that the other side was painted in the unmistakable shade of the chief's red. Soon after the story was published, reports National Review, Deadspin was contacted by conservative sports site Outkick about issuing a retraction, but Deadspin opted for a Dan... um, uh, double for a, a double down. That decision um, may end up being ruinously expensive. Let's hope so. And let's hope this kid's lawyers have already been in touch with the legal team of the Covington Catholic kid. A new EPA rule will kill manufacturing jobs on Wednesday. The Environmental Protection Agency finalized a new stricter air pollution standard that promises to impact America's manufacturing industry negatively. The new air pollution rule lowers the legal limit for particulate matter by nearly 25 percent from 12 micrograms per cubic meter down to nine micrograms. According to a 2023 study by Oxford Economics, the new strict PM 2.5 regulation would result in a loss of between 162.4 and 197.4 billion 
decline in economic activity and cost nearly 100 million Americans their jobs. 100 million. Tightening the NASDAQ PM 2.5 standard will a grind permits to a halt for a large portion of the country, contended Marty Durbin, senior vice president for policy at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. EPA's new rule is expected to put 569 counties out of compliance and push many others close to the limit, which threatens economic growth. It's not just Bidenflation that has been negatively impacting the economy. It's also Biden's regulatory czars. The Supreme Court heard arguments about whether Trump can be on the 2024 ballot in a landmark case and seemed to lean in favor of the president, the former president. Yellen dodged on whether the Treasury Department moved to surveil America's legal purchases. Marianne Williamson has ended her 2024 campaign and Biden mixed up coal and Merkel in the second gaffe of the week. Fast foodies are getting fed up with price hikes at the drive through and convinced by the data. Dartmouth College has reinstated SAT requirements. Netanyahu has rejected Hamas's ceasefire demands, vowing to fight until absolute victory. And on this day in history, 1587, Mary, Queen of Scots, is beheaded in Fotheringhay Castle in England after she is implicated in a plot to murder her cousin, Queen Elizabeth I. 1693, the charter is granted for the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg in the Virginia Colony. 1862, the Civil War Battle of Roanoke Island, North Carolina, ends in victory for Union forces led by General Ambrose Burnside. 1904, the Russo-Japanese War, a conflict over control of Manchuria and Korea, begins as Japanese forces attack Port Arthur. 1910, the Boy Scouts of America is incorporated. 1922, President Warren G. Harding has a radio installed in the White House. 19... Wise man. 1924, the first execution by gas in the United States takes place at the Nevada State Prison in Carson City as Guy John, a Chinese immigrant convicted of murder, is put to death. 1952, Queen Elizabeth II proclaims her accession to the British throne following the death of her father, King George VI. 1968, three college students are killed in a confrontation between demonstrators and highway patrolmen at South Carolina State University in Orangeburg, in the wake of protests over a whites-only bowling alley. 1992, the Olympic Winter Games open in Albertville, France. 1993, General Motors sues NBC, alleging that Dateline NBC rigged two car truck crashes to show the 1973-87 to GM pickups were prone to fires inside impact crashes. NBC would settle the lawsuit the following day and apologize for its unscientific demonstration. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, in an assertion of same-sex marriage rights, Attorney General Eric Holder announces that same-sex spouses could not be compelled to testify against each other, should be eligible to file for bankruptcy jointly, and are entitled to the same rights and privileges as federal prison inmates in opposite-sex marriages. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, the second part of my conversation with Mark Paoletta, he's co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words. And in the five o'clock hour, a conversation with Phyllis Bennett, director of Inspiring Women Northwest on the Ignite Women's Conference coming up Saturday, March 9th. 
Village Church. I hope to see you there. I'm going to be co-moderating and I have a session I'll be teaching. And finally, we'll talk with Jason Williams, Director of Taxpayers Association of Oregon. Uh, We'll talk about the 35-day legislative session, the proposed statewide property tax, and much, much more. Jason Williams joining us also in the second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll be back. Stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Mark Paoletta. He's the co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. It's published by Regnery, released just recently, and it provides a unique, never-before-seen or read exclusive interview with Justice Clarence Thomas, the court's most senior justice. It includes much more. In fact, 95% of the book's material was not in the documentary. So if you'd like to go deeper, this is a great resource to do just that. We've been kind of walking through uh, uh, Justice Thomas's history. Let's talk about his entry into the public arena. He joined the Reagan administration. He hired Anita Hill. And for many, um, the only thing they know about Clarence Thomas is the question about whether or not the accusations raised by Anita Hill were true or not. And um, it, it sort of ended there. Can you talk about that part of his uh, of his history? He joined the administration he worked in the EEOC, and he was, in fact, the one who hired Anita Hill at the Department of Education. Yeah, so uh, he, he did join the uh, Reagan administration, and early on, he um, uh, was asked by his friend, his closest friend, actually, from Holy Cross in, in Yale Law School to help out somebody who was like failing at their job, and that turned out to be Anita Hill. And so um, Clarence Thomas, as a favor to his friend Bill Hardy, hired uh, Anita Hill, um, at the, and it was at the Department of Education. And I say that, Georgine, because what happened is uh, she worked for Clarence Thomas over there. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas changes jobs to the EEOC and she follows him. That was one of the big things that came out in the, in the kind of the, the hearings and the allegations. Is why would somebody she claimed it had started over at the Department of Education uh, and that, you know, he moves over to the EEOC? Why would anyone, a Yale educator, she's a Yale law grad, follow for sexual harasser from one job to another. It just doesn't make any sense. It also came out, of course, that she, uh, when she ultimately left uh, working for Justice Thomas or then EEOC Chairman uh, Clarence Thomas, um, she continued to call him uh, when she left. Uh, and, you know, there were these call logs, which she originally lied about, um, and we produced them that showed all of these calls to him. So um, there's so many facts uh, about why her story and why her um, her witnesses' stories never added up. Um, and I actually set up a website in 2016. It's called com, And your listeners could go to that website and see every single, um, um, you know, uh, 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 analysis of her testimony, her witnesses' testimony. There were 12 women who actually testified for Clarence Thomas who worked, uh, uh, you know, with uh, Anita Hill or Clarence Thomas. So not a single person came forward and testified on behalf of Anita Hill. When she went to the, um, when the FBI came to interview her, she gave the FBI two names of people she said would support her. They didn't. Um, and so not a single person came forward who worked together with the, with the two of them who supported Anita Hill's uh, story or claims. And at the end of those hearings, when the American people, and you remember them watching them, everyone watched those hearings at a certain age, um, the American people believed Clarence Thomas 58 to 24 percent, 58 percent, and two to one believed Clarence Thomas over Anita Hill, and only 26 percent of women believed Anita Hill. So, you know, in my view, the allegations were thoroughly debunked. 
Um, even Joe Biden, it, it was on record saying he didn't believe in Nita Hill. Um, as Clarence Thomas says, it was a circus. It was a national disgrace. As he famously said, it was a high-tech lynching. And I worked with him on those um, uh, you know, dur- dur- during the, that confirmation hearing. And so there's so many facts, and, and I'm happy to talk about it, but I would point your, your listeners to um, that website, anitahillcase.com, because, again, one of the other things is Justice Thomas had been appointed to all these positions over the years, and you go through a, a, an FBI background check where they look into, you know, they interview everyone you worked with, they interview where you went to school and all that kind of stuff. Nothing like this had ever, ever, ever come up on Clarence Thomas through five FBI background checks. And so for this to kind of come out of the blue uh, was just, you know, not plausible in my view. And as the facts un- unfolded and the stories unfolded, you know, you don't need to believe me. You can believe the American people who watched those hearings and came to their conclusion that she was not telling the truth and Clarence Thomas was. And, and that's why he was confirmed 52 to 48. It was interesting to me to read about his response and his thinking during that uh, that season, which really reflect his upbringing uh, by his grandfather, why he chose not to address certain things, um, what he watched and didn't watch, what he was thinking through the process. And when he finally spoke in his own defense, um, the words that he used. So I found that absolutely fascinating. And I felt like I knew Clarence Thomas a bit better in the midst of all of that, because you don't really get the inside uh, look watching the hearings. And he, uh, again, is a very uh, private and for the most part, very quiet man. So this really gave an insight that I thought was very helpful. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things is he goes back to the fact that when he was, you know, first nominated, the, 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 it was the pro-abortion, you know, uh, groups that wanted to destroy him the most. And uh, because they, you know, th- th- that was this issue, as he said, right, they will destroy my life. They will um, belittle me because they want this one issue that they didn't think, uh, you know, I, I would be solid for them on. And so he links all of this, including the attacks on him with Anita Hill to kind of the, 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 the pro choice pro-abortion forces trying to block him from being on the Supreme Court. And so he, you know, as I talked about earlier, the minute this, you know, he was nominated, there were attacks, there were attacks, attacks. It just didn't work. Um, and he was, you know, we've uh, been successfully able to push back on all of them and show why they were not true or they were distorted or whatever. And so he was looking at a very healthy confirmation margin of in the 60, 60 votes. Now, remember, at the time, there were 57 Democrats in the Senate at the time. So, you know, we were, we were the, the, the vote total looked pretty well, pretty good. And then this thing kind of blows up. And, um, and in fact, when, the, you know, when it first was, and again, I, I can spend hours on this, this topic. <laughs> I've done a lot of work on it. But when, you know, the, the allegations were first made, uh, you know, Joe Biden, and every Democrat senator, right, um, had access to that to her statement in the FBI file that was done. And, you know, the interviews that were done immediately after they interviewed Clarence Thomas, they interviewed Anita Hill. They interviewed those two women she, she had pointed them to, um, and and um, and all the senators looked at it and said, "This is not worth delaying the vote on because it was so not credible." Um, and these were all Democrat senators who who, uh, who made that decision. They were in the majority. The Republicans. The, the ranking Republican was Tom Thurman at the time. He didn't share it to Republican members. So um, except for Arlen Specter, who found out about it separately. But in any event, my point is, is that the, the allegations did not up when they were made. 
um, when she came and testified publicly, her story changed so much uh, that um, there was questions about how do you tell dissent in your statement something, and then when you were interviewed by the FBI, you told them basically the same thing, and then when you testified, it was absolute all the crazy things that were said that everyone knows those hearings for. Um, she never told anyone those stories in the first two sessions, and when Senator Specter asked her, why did you, why is it so different from your original two statements to what you are t- testifying to publicly? She said, like, why didn't you tell the FBI that? She said, oh, the FBI didn't, it told me I didn't have to say this if I, if I felt uncomfortable. Literally both FBI agents, these are career people, swore out affidavits during the hearing saying that's an absolute lie. We told Anita Hill she should tell us everything. And if she's uncomfortable talking about some of these uncomfortable things, um, that the male agent, because it was a male and female the male agent would leave and she could just talk to the female agent. So like those are the kinds of things that were happening that people forget now because of this onslaught of nonstop trashing of Clarence Thomas and this narrative of all these different movies and books were sort of taking me to Hill's side. Um, but but lo- all these pieces of information were coming out at the time and people understood this story didn't add up. Yeah, yeah. We're going to continue our conversation for one more segment. Uh, we'll talk about the, how the radical became a... Uh, uh, originalist in the Constitution and his um, his impact on the Supreme Court, now the, the longest-serving member sitting on the court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Mark Paoletta, co-author of Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. I noted uh, recently there was a... Um, a support letter written on the Supreme Court justice. We, the undersigned, condemn the barrage of racist, vicious and ugly personal attacks that we are witnessing on Clarence Thomas, a sitting Supreme Court justice, whether it is calling him a racist slur and Uncle Tom or questioning his blackness over his jurisprudence. The disparagement of this man, of his faith and of his character is abominable. Um, also, there was Hillary Clinton, who. Uh, went out of her way to claim to have discerned the inner workings of the Supreme Court justice, his mind at Yale Law. Although she wasn't in his graduating class, she declared that she knew Thomas and perceived him as a person of grievance. Why she inserted herself as a person of grievance herself into the situation uh, is not altogether clear. We've had people suggest that they hope Clarence Thomas eats all the wrong things and dies early like black men do. Clarence Thomas celebrated his 74th birthday. That's two years beyond the life expectancy for a black male in this country. We're talking about the book Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words, in which he tells his story, not through the filter of mainstream media or his critics, but his own thoughts in his own way. And um, uh, encouraging you to, uh, to see the documentary and read the book, both contain a lot of uh, information the other does not. And we're talking with Mark Paoletta on that. Let's talk about his uh, his public life, his uh, life on the court, entering the public arena, the birth of an originalist from the radical that we read about earlier in the book. Yeah, so great, great summary, George. I love your uh, descriptions uh, of, of the left and their attacks. He really just triggers them. Hillary Clinton is just laughable. Um, but yes, you know, he joins the Reagan administration. And what's really interesting, right, among any like, uh, senior official in the government. What does Clarence Thomas do? He gets the EEOC, which was atrociously run by Eleanor Holmes Norton. Everyone agreed. A GAO report came out just after Clarence Thomas started uh, at the EEOC, saying it was the most terrible run agency, I think, in the federal government. He turns it around, gets it up and running, and, 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 and gets a great plaque given to him when he leaves 
by the EEOC career employees. The Washington Post even says he did a great job there. But in the middle of that, he really gets interested in the Constitution, in our founding, right? And he, and he brings in these two Claremont uh, kind of fellows at Claremont Institute, um, this conservative place out in California, to help kind of talk, talk through the Constitution and our founding ideals. And that literally becomes the foundations for his jurisprudence when he finally gets to the court um, and sort of, you know, is looking at natural law. And when he gets on the court, his respect for the role of a just a judge and a justice, which is you're supposed to be faithful to the Constitution and not and not substitute your own policy choices. Uh, that's left, you know, to the to, to the elected bodies, to the representatives. And so he is our most committed originalist, and that is applying original meaning of the Constitution um, or, you know, a, a statute um, by, by what by what the original meaning is. And again, not what your your personal preferences. Are. And that has taken and you just saw that happen with respect to the Dobbs case and overturning Roe v. Wade. And I think Justice Thomas, this would probably surprise a lot of your listeners, Justice Thomas writes the most opinions per year, any justice by far. Okay, he writes somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 opinions per year, whether they're majority opinions, concurrences or dissents. And by way of comparison, um, I think the next closest might be like Justice Breyer used to write in like 25 or so. So do I your rights in 22. Um, Justice Kagan only writes 10 per year. But Justice Thomas, for many, many years now, has been laying down a body of work uh, through opinions that goes through every kind of section of the Constitution and is giving his his take faithful to the Constitution, faithful to the original meaning and laying down. So now, right, he used to be solo dissent. He used to be in the minority, you know, in terms of losing the votes. Now, as the court has become his way, all of these opinions that he's spent years and years writing and laying down, as I call it, are now the foundation for all of these opinions that are happening right now, even if he doesn't write them. So the, the, the recent opinion by Justice Gorsuch that was on the EPA reigning in the administrative states with, with the EPA running wild under this statute, and they basically said, you can't do that. Justice Thomas was writing on that back you know, six, seven years ago. He did three significant opinions that laid out the framework for how to approach those cases. He, you know, he, he talked about, he wrote about and voted uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade from the time he got on the court in 1992. So he's been writing constantly on overturning Roe v. Wade, why it's not a right in the Constitution. What happens? Sam Alito writes the opinion, right? Justice Thomas writes the concurrence. But all of these cases, the religious liberties case, the Second Amendment case that he did write um, on making Second Amendment rights consistent with the, the original meaning of the Constitution, going back and looking at what the, the, when it was ratified, what that meant. Uh, and the rights it gave uh, the American citizen. And so it's really spectacular right now that you're seeing this, you know, Justice Thomas was always incredibly influential. And there was a book that came out that showed how from the very first time he went on to the Supreme Court, the very first conference, he switched Scalia and Rehnquist votes to his, to, to his view. And so he's been, you know, a, a force since the beginning. Of course, the left has tried to attack him, but now no one right, can deny that he is the most influential justice on mm -hmm. the Supreme Court. And, and more importantly, he has inspired a generation of, of, of law students and new lawyers. And he has 15 former law clerks that are federal judges now, federal judges and a couple state judges. Uh, and they are, they were trained by him. Right? They are 
they are his his students, if you will. And they never leave. It's a Thomas family, which is very strong. So he is he is the most impactful justice in in, in our in our lifetime and maybe ever. Uh, and uh, and he's our greatest living American. And I think he showed through both his forcefulness and boldness of his opinions, and also how he never backed down. I think he gave a lot of courage as a model to, you know, the younger justices that are up there right now, particularly after the despicable leak of Bob's opinion, where I think somebody did that to help intimidate some mm-hmm. of these justices to come off of that opinion. And I think Justice Thomas's kind of life and the example he set all the way back to, 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 the, to his confirmation, I don't run from bullies. That's what he said, right? I'm not going to withdraw. I prefer to fasten the bullet than leave this process. He is not going to back down. I think he showed that example to these justices, and it's, and it's helped create this this incredible majority that's on the Supreme Court right now. Yeah, and again, understanding something of his background explains where that courage comes from. Clarence Thomas mentioned Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell as examples of rulings that could be reconsidered. That's the latest outrage on the left. Um, your thoughts on on that? Obviously, a Supreme Court justice doesn't bring cases before the court. They have to come through the whole system. But your thoughts on his his rather bold statement on those issues uh, after overturning Roe versus Wade? Yeah, I, I loved it. It's classic Clarence Thomas, which is, you know, what did, what did he say? He's faithful to the Constitution and come what may. All right. So what did he say there? He said that substantive due process is the, the, the term of art that the Supreme Court used to create rights. Now, the, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment is just a procedural thing. You get fairness. It doesn't say you have a right in there. OK. And so Justice Thomas has said all of these cases that are decided on that basis, including Roe, are wrong because there is no such thing as substantive due process. And so he would he was basically pointing out that all, he's not saying it doesn't exist in some other piece of the Constitution. But for that line of analysis, it, it, it they're wrong and we should reconsider those cases. So now and what did he do to particularly I love when he does. He trolls his critics, as I say, he points out what's the most infamous example or the most infamous examples of substantive due process. It was Roger B. Tawney's decision. He points this out in his concurrence in the Dred Scott case, right? This despicable decision where a, 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 that judge, that chief justice came up with a right of slave owner to own slaves. And that even though there was a law that said if a slave escaped from the South and got to the North, he was free. Roger Tawney said, no, 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 no. I'm making up a right for the slave owner. So Clarence Thompson you like substantive due process? That's what could happen when you have unelected people inventing rights that you may not like. You may like your, your right to an abortion. You may like X right. But, hey, remember, this is where substantive due process got us last time. Yeah. And yeah. I loved how he, he used that as an example. Well, I, I so appreciate the book Created Equal, Clarence Thomas, in his own words, because it gives us an insight into his life, his history, his character. Uh, and the influence that he wields on the course that I think most people underestimate. And I thank you for the documentary and for the book that help us better understand this longest serving sitting justice um, who has a significant outsized uh, influence on the Supreme Court. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Regine. Really appreciate having me on. Again, uh, our guest, Mark Paoletta, co-author along with Michael Pack, uh, Created Equal. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may have become accustomed over the last 10 years, Ignite, the Women's Conference, is back this March. Here to talk with us about that is Phyllis Bennett. She is the Director of Inspiring Women to Biblical Excellent. She's also the co-moderator of Ignite 2024, All In Living with Grace-Filled Holiness. Phyllis, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Georgine, for having me. And I'm grateful that uh, the co-moderator with me is you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm looking Looking forward forward to doing that together. Yeah, which will be the 11th year of Ignite. Let's just back up a little bit and talk about um, this conference. As I mentioned, it's been around for a decade. And this has been a, a conference that is directed toward bringing women together around the scriptures. Uh, tell us a little bit of the backstory of Ignite. Well, um, it's been going on for 11 years. We, I was um, hired as the director of the Women's Center for Ministry at Western Seminary and was asked to create events for our city. And so we have had Survive in the Fall, which focuses more on women involved in ministry, women in leadership. And then I just had a real heart for a, a, a large outreach to our city. So it's grown to about uh, 500 women uh, normally, and it's just so thrilling to see women from every walk of life, um, different denominations, um, uh, multi-ages. We usually have two worship teams. It's it's just a thrilling, thrilling day. Um, power packed. Yeah, it, it really is. And over this, uh, the course of this um, 11 years now, I th- this year is number 11. Is that correct? It is number 11, yes. This year's number 11th. Um, You featured a number of excellent Bible teachers, uh, women from our city who have brought God's word around a particular theme. Now, this year, the theme is all in living with grace filled holiness. Tell us a bit about that theme and how you arrive at where we are in the city among women uh, and how this focuses on really the heart of where women happen to be at, at a given time. Yeah, our desire is we have a brainstorming team of about 25 to 30 women. Uh, We now gather by Zoom. We used to do it in person pre-pandemic. But we are just gathered for a morning of listening to God of what's on his heart for the city. We really want to know what he thinks about the women of his city and how we can meet their needs. And so this last year, we we had a a real God moment because we were talking a lot about the theme of, of boldness. And one of the older women spoke up and said, I'm not feeling comfortable with that word. And so I looked to Lindsay Ponder, who was going to be our keynote for Revive. And I said, Lindsay, how would your generation, she's now 27, how would your generation respond to that? And she disciples the generation below her. And she said, my generation is is looking to, um, to go back to the old values, the old fashioned values. So she said, I would want to say living with grace-filled holiness. And there was just this holy moment, like, wow, (laughs) who could touch that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we just felt um, that the Lord had given to us the theme uh, of uh, God's calling us to to be holy. Uh, it's, It's a biblical command, be holy for I am holy. But in our world um, that is increasingly losing its moral center, it's easy to struggle with finding leadership and modeling integrity, grounded in truth. And we're just excited to see what God wants to do. I, he's got to be present because he is the Holy One. And so we're, we're excited to see how he shows up 
and how he draws us to his holy heart. I love the balance of holiness, which can be so intimidating and overwhelming when you consider the holiness of God. It's it's preceded by grace-filled holiness. That seems more approachable. Yeah. It reminds us that uh, we are the recipients of grace, that we have the have access to grace through his Holy Spirit. And how do we live that out in daily life? What an exciting opportunity to explore God's word among women from this city who are Bible teachers and leaders and moms and, you know, every walk of life who come together around um, around serving Christ in a way that reflects his heart for this city. Let's talk a bit about how the conference um, is is conducted. Uh, we mentioned, or maybe I didn't mention, that Marianne Nowak is the keynote this year. There are also a series of workshops that reflect the theme of the conference. Let's start with Marianne. Talk a bit about her. This is not her first time being a speaker for uh, Ignite. She's been uh, a breakout speaker a good number of times, and this is her second time that she will be our keynote. So I'm very excited to have her. She um, nurtures a flock of 500 women at River West Church. Uh, as pastor to women there at, uh, um, and they have online morning night. Um, so she is is such a dynamic Bible teacher, and I'm just thrilled to have her. It's going to be really fun to see what God does through her. So we're looking forward some, to some great biblical insights from the keynote speaker, Marianne Nowak. There are also 20 inspiring and empowering breakout sessions that cover a wide range of subjects that will really touch the heart of women in our city. Tell us a bit about some of them. Well, I, um, I feel like there's some tough topics we're uh, tackling this mm-hmm. year. Um, Julie Tadema, Do As I Say, Recognizing Recovering from Spiritual Abuse. We've been wanting to have that for a long time. Um, and then um, Jody Mayhew is taking another tough one on leaving addiction, the reordering of our of our desire. I'm, I'm thrilled that we're having that one. And then protecting our children. And a new speaker among us will be Natalie Larson. And she's going to look at the whole issue of, um, of protecting our children, particularly in the area of of gender identity and the gender fluidity that uh, is being created in our schools today. She's a brave brave lady, but she's going to call us to rise up like Deborah and to be a mother in Israel. So there there are three that I'm I'm particularly excited about that will be... um, They're just topics we need to look at. Yeah, yeah. And And, I... Go ahead. Please go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just going to say... uh, Stacey Womack is coming with uh, moving from horrible to, to holiness, the, the whole issue of, of, of domestic violence. Um, yeah, so there, there's some tough topics. And then the easier topics, um, but so needed, building holy habits into our children, the call to leadership as a leader, which Dorcas Smith is going to take um, from, from the Brown Sisters. I'm excited that she's going to be speaking this year. Yeah, and then Daring to Dream Again. Um Holiness reborn. What do we have? What happens when we hit, hit a kibosh in life and life just hits us and throws us under the bus? Do we come back? Can we dare to dream again? Can holiness be reborn in us? So, yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I just think they're going to be uh, uh, incredible topics. Oh, I do, too. And I think it's important to mention that we're talking about women from different generations. You have some very young women. You have some mature believers who've walked with the Lord for a very long time uh, who are bringing from God's word a perspective on how we can tackle some of these challenging uh, subjects that our grandparents probably would not have imagined <laughs> would be uh, relevant yeah. to, to women of faith. 
Yes, so true. So true, Georgine. Yeah. Now, in addition to coming together around God's Word with great teaching, and you mentioned some of the breakout sessions, there are 20 of them. You can go to the website for more details on the the remainder. Uh, But in addition to that, there is a time of deep, rich worship. And there is a worship team that's made up of folks from different places in our city as well. And I I am so thrilled. Um, Our worship team is a bit of a shift this year, but we have a new worship team leader, uh, Jamie Bonifee, and she is so dynamic, passionate, uh, heart for God, so gifted musically. Um, and Olivia Pothoff will be back. Uh, she, she's on vocals and uh, keyboard and just really blessed us a lot last year. And we have a violinist, um, a, a bass guitarist, an acoustic guitar, um, Amanda from uh, Ananda from... Um, uh, from Village, which is where we're going to be, Village Church. She's their pastor of worship. She's, I think, 27. Um, and grew up in Brazil and had a dream of coming to America to uh, learn English so she could. And now she's here leading an intercultural, multicultural worship ministry there. She's really dynam- dy- dynamic. So, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a great time. And then I'm thrilled that we are also going to have special musical guest, um, one being yours truly, Georgine, and her sister are coming to, to bless us in the first plenary, and just so thrilled to uh, meet your sister. And I didn't even know you had a sister, much less <laughs> one that sang with you. The Rose Sisters are going to be on stage. And then the second um, in the second plenary, we're going to have Olivia uh, Pothoff and um, Joy Haley will be doing a duet that they've actually recorded together. So I think that's going to be really a special, special time. So it's a power pack day. There's, there's no two ways yeah, to stop it. It's, it's, it's going to be great. <laughs> I don't, just don't miss it. <laughs> We're talking with Phyllis Bennett. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. So stay with us again. Phyllis is the director of, Um, Inspiring Women to Biblical Excellence, and we're talking about Ignite 2024, the Women's Conference. I'm Georgine Rice, back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Phyllis Bennett. She is the director of Inspiring Women to Biblical Excellence, and she is herself an excellent leader, Bible teacher, professor. Uh, she has been a leader in our community for many years, and we're so grateful that she has dedicated herself not just to her own spiritual enrichment, but reaching out and ministering to women throughout our city. She has gathered a collection of women who have a similar heart and together have and have inquired of the Lord what would you have us focus on this year in this conference to meet the needs of the women in our community and ignite 2024 as a reflection of that intentional deliberate seeking after the Lord coming to a, a conference title selecting speakers um, workshop titles and so on w- worship that will be centered around the theme so that we can come together as women in our city of various generations and uh, as well seek the Lord what would you have me do in this generation at this time that will honor you how can we uh, apply grace filled holiness in each of our walks of life and uh, Phyllis I'm just so grateful uh, to, for your commitment to our community and your commitment to women in our community that has continued this through the 11th year of this particular ministry, but in other ways as well. So thank you. Thank you, Georgina. 
I am thrilled that we get to do it again, and we get to do it together. And I'm excited. Um, Georgine is going to be doing a workshop on holiness in the workplace, so that will be another winner. You know, it's such so an honor such an honor to be among the the women who will be uh teaching in these workshops. They are gifted teachers and I feel a, <laughs> a little bit out of place sometimes because they're they're just incredible serious women of faith who have so much to offer in our community. So I'm grateful for the breakout sessions that will be part of uh Ignite 2024. I should also mention that when you're at the conference, you have an opportunity uh to engage in receive prayer or to enter Intercede with others. There's a, a gifted group of uh, intercessors who are there to pray for the conference, to pray for individuals who are part of the conference. So we're just bathed in prayer. It began in prayer. It's sustained by prayer. And there are opportunities to uh, to continue through this conference. There are also uh, opportunities for women to learn about some of the ministries in our community as well. Tell us about that, uh, that opportunity in the lobby of uh, Village. Yeah, we gathered uh, a ministry fair. Uh, focused on, I like to call them the hidden and hurting, hurting people in our city. Everything from um, uh, looking at the issue of a, um, a, safe pregnancies and um, trying to nurture people through those kinds of hard seasons. Um, uh, ministries downtown, uh, the missions downtown that will be represented. Um, yeah, it's it's just a, a fabulous time to gather those that are uh, that just really need a voice. These kinds of ministries don't get into churches very often, and so we want to bring the church to them so that they can um, people can walk around and introduce themselves and get to know uh, what these ministries are all about. Mm. So yeah. Yeah, it's it, again, it's just an opportunity to see ourselves as part of the body of Christ. We have women from, yes. as you mentioned, the, the different denominations, different age groups who are coming together with a singular purpose. And that is to draw nearer to God, to draw nearer to one another and to equip ourselves for the purpose that God calls each of us to. How did you uh, come uh, come up with um, this idea of of bringing women together, and how do you gather such a unique collection uh, of women who are part of the the leadership and teaching team of Ignite? Um, this and in previous years. Well, I really feel that since we were we have been birthed out of the Women's Center at at Western Seminary, we have eight classes there that are still being taught. Um, uh, women in leadership, I teach two on biblical excellence. One is uh, um, training women to exposit God's Word, another one to write Bible study curriculum. Uh, and so that's been the backbone. There are a lot of our speakers that have graduated from Western. Um, and we have, um, and then speakers that have graduated from Multnomah and George Fox. We are rich in our city with um, institutions that have educated uh, people. And so as we draw our speakers from that group of people, it's just been so thrilling to see the conference grow in, in breadth as well as depth. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been great. And then we're, we're constantly trying to hook up and uh, um, to really collaborate with others. Collaborative connections are really important to us. And so, for instance, um, Renee Boucher will be doing a, um, a breakout on She's uh, heads up the prayer ministry within our city, and so I'm I'm really thrilled that she will be among us um, doing a, a one on rezoning through prayer. 
rezoning our city through prayer. And um, then uh, Brenda Palapos will be doing one on hearing God's holy heart for others. So hearing God for the individual and then hearing God for the city will be two different breakouts. We've put them at two different hours. So people who have a passion for prayer can um, get challenged in prayer at each breakout time. So yeah, it's just uh, it's just a, a fabulous. And then um, just even looking at the, the story for a waiting world, uh, Taylor Turkington is a, a graduate of Western, and she's going to be focusing on 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 evangelism. And you'll be doing the same for in the workplace. So um, I, I just think it's going to be it's just going to be a power packed day, and so fun to see these women who've really become a community together. We love each other, encourage each other, and want to keep championing each other. Yeah, it is so inspiring to be in a group of women, some of whose faces I recognize, others I don't, women who are significantly younger than me, women who are older than I am. Some of us are new in the faith. Some of us have been walking with the Lord for a period of time, but we come together for a common purpose. And God uses that time in very uh, significant ways to minister to us as individuals and to buoy us up as women of faith in our community. I think we walk out of the, the sanctuary at the end of it just having a surge of energy and a sense of purpose. And I I so enjoy just having that opportunity. Once again, we're talking about the Ignite Women's Conference. Uh, This year, the theme is all in all. Don't say this very well, uh, Phyllis. All in living with grace filled holiness. Marianne Nowak is the uh, uh, the keynote speaker. There are 20 breakout sessions, great worship. And I love that there'll be an opportunity to learn about ministries from around our city. And all of that is going to be held this year at Village Church in Beaverton on March the 9th. Now, let me encourage you to mark your calendar. It's a day long event. March the 9th. Online registration is $39 until the 4th of March. So now is a great time to register and to enjoy that discount. Uh, you can also register at the door for $45, and there are student and group discounts available. So you can check that out at the website, and I'll give that to you in just a moment. But I really want to encourage you. You know, you hear a, a conversation like this, and you might think, oh, that sounds really interesting, but I'm not sure I would become girl. Come. We are inviting you to come. <laughs> Amen. To come yes. and be with and your bring sisters. Bring your friends with you. <laughs> and bring yeah. your friends with you. Come and yes. meet more um more girls in the body of Christ who are along with you contending for the faith, who are um are endeavoring to live a life of holiness and purpose to love others well. And that's what this conference is all about, bringing us together and all of us being inspired and encouraged by one another's stories and the opportunity to to hear from gifted teachers to worship together outside of our our congregations, which is wonderful, but meet some girls from from other uh, churches as well. Now, again, that's coming up on. Go ahead, Phyllis. No, no. I think within our churches, we can so easily get so siloed Mm -hmm. and and forget that the body of Christ is so much bigger. The power that is at this conference, you can feel the presence of Christ. Uh, It's an over the top experience. 
Yeah, it really Please is. <laughs> it is. So let me just encourage you, if you're shy, come. If you're, you know, an outgoing person, you love to talk, come. If you're somewhere in the middle, you're very young and you're not sure, come. If you're older and you think maybe my season of ministry is over, come. The bottom line is we want to encourage you to be a part of Ignite. We want you to experience what it means to live out grace-filled holiness in whatever role God has called you. And we're talking about all in um, giving ourselves wholly to, to Christ. You can get more information at lovingpeoplefully.org slash ignite dash conference dash 2024. And I'll make sure that's on the uh, Facebook page and the KPDQ page as well so that you can check that out. Lovingpeoplefully.org slash ignite hyphen conference hyphen 2024. Uh, we just want to encourage you to come and be with us at Village Baptist on March the 9th in Beaverton. Any closing thoughts, Phyllis? I just don't want you to miss it. I, the last thing I would want for you to go to church on Sunday morning on the 10th and, and have everybody talking about it at your church and that you weren't there. Please don't. Please come. Please bring friends. Please know that God is going to touch your life in amazing ways. Amen. Well, Phyllis, once again, I thank you so much for your leadership in the city, and I thank you for talking with us here today. Well, thank you so much, Georgine, for the opportunity. God bless. Bye-bye. Okay. Again, Phyllis Bennett is the director of Inspiring Women to Biblical Excellence, and she is uh, going to be one of the co-moderators, along with myself, at the Ignite Women's Conference coming up on March the 9th at Village Baptist Church. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. Well, as you know, the uh, Oregon legislative session, the 35-day session is underway. But Oregon lawmakers, they've laid out a pretty ambitious agenda to tackle the state's housing, homelessness crisis, Measure 110, and all of this in the shadow of the Supreme Court ruling that said uh, 10 senators who engaged in last year's lengthy legislative walkout cannot seek re-election. Here to talk with us all about that is Jason Williams. He's the director of Taxpayers Association of Oregon and oversees OregonWatchdog.com to talk with us about the legislative session, the proposed statewide property tax, and much more. Hey, Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, it's great to be here. Well, we're in the midst of a a very short legislative session. Your thoughts just initially about this 35-day session and whether or not they're likely to accomplish anything meaningful. Well, uh, when the politicians gather into Salem, there's always the threat of raising your taxes. And one of the ideas that they floated already is the first ever statewide property tax. And this would go to fund public safety, and this would be... If, if passed, it would be a property tax that would be exempt from the two limits on how high your property taxes can go. Right now, there is a Measure 5 limit, which mm-hmm. limits the rate uh, of your taxes. Then there is the Measure 50 limit, which limits the assessed value and how much they can tax out of your assessed value. And those are two constitutional limits. If this statewide property tax is passed, they will just skip that. And it would also do something else because people are used to having property taxes being passed by your county and city, a mm-hmm. local. Property taxes are local. But the politicians said, well, what if we statewide were able to pass property taxes 
And um, so that is one of the biggest concerns we have right now is a statewide property tax. It's HJR 201. It really is incredible. It's not surprising that they would come up with it because we've been around long enough to know the legislature can come up with anything to generate revenue. But to consider, you know, public safety, who can be opposed to public safety to establish a statewide property tax that is not subject to the limitations that we've seen with these uh, local uh, property taxes is incredible. How likely is it in the next 30 days, um, however many are remaining, that they're likely to pass that? And would it require the approval of of the Oregonians in order for it to be implemented? Yes, they do need to change the Constitution. So it would be a referral to voters with a ballot measure. And we don't know. We're waiting to see if this is going to have its first hearing. And the idea with funding public safety, it begs the question here. It's like... These are the same politicians in 2017 decided to let criminals out early for auto theft, ID theft, and property theft. That helped to make Portland one of the car theft capitals in America once they reduced the penalty for car theft. Then, of course, Portland defunded police. Governor Brown released 1,000 prisoners out early during COVID. And then, of course, we have the drug decriminalization that went on. So there is a crime problem in Oregon, but the politicians created it. Created it. And then to label a piece of legislation uh, under the guise of public safety, which again, people, of course, we are in favor of public safety without knowing that backstory. It makes it very tempting. And then you think about the fact that Oregonians, uh, they passed to what, measure 110. So I have very little confidence that people will think this through and uh, that this will fail if, in fact, it does end up um, on the ballot. I know that the, the legislators have made a couple of things their priority. One happens to be housing, um, dealing with uh, with Measure 110. Is this uh, tax measure, this property tax measure, among those that they're so excited about that they're likely to get it through this session? Um, well, no, they, they have a completely separate uh, pile of $500 million that they found under a couch in Salem ah. that they're going to dedicate. The Cotex says, hey, we're going to come up with $500 million, uh, and apparently there's that much surplus and reserve funds, and they're going to spend it on affordable housing. They are going to spend it on uh, rent subsidies. And I really worry about rent subsidies because when people start saying, oh, I don't think I could pay my rent, and then you start paying people's rent, um, then it's you're, you're creating this dependency, and it's really hard to verify whether they needed it uh, in the first place. Um, and how many yeah, entitlements so, uh, actually ever end? Yeah, yeah. And they just started a new one here very quietly. I just I just saw this this morning. Uh, it is giving young homeless people $1,000 a month checks and just to help them uh, with their homelessness or hopefully to help them get out of poverty. But it's like, I don't think that's mm. the way you're going to get people out of poverty if you sit there and cut a $1,000 check, but Oregon is already doing it. It's a pilot program. They're cutting $1,000 checks to young homeless people, and they could use it for whatever they want. This is straight-up cash. Um, Incredible. Yeah. Well, the other thing that they have stated is one of their major priorities is uh, 
the beleaguered Measure 110. I, I still can hardly believe it was passed in the state of Oregon. It's been nothing but an abject failure, which those who opposed it knew from the beginning. Um, what are they suggesting should be done and how, again, how likely are they to uh, either reverse it altogether or yes. to improve it sufficiently that we can at least hold our nose and live with it? I think right now, um, kind of the liberal majority in the Capitol, they just want to make Measure 110 look better. Mm. They want to make legalizing drugs or decriminalizing, technically. They want to make it look better. So they're looking at laws like, well, you just can't do it in public, and you can't do it on a public street. And whereas uh, the majority of Oregonians, they just want to see this rolled back, that if you get caught with a bunch of cocaine, that a police officer can arrest you, and a, and a judge can put you behind bars and use that to say, hey, maybe you should get your life together. Maybe you should do this diversion program. But right now, they they just want to cre- fix the public relation disaster of Measure 110. And I think once they if, – if they do that, they say, oh, yeah, you can't use the drugs on the street, um, then you're going to have people just using it in the dark corners of mm-hmm. parks and alleys. And then cops still will probably not do many arrests because you have to get the judges and you have to get the district attorneys to prosecute. And this is the reason why cops right now can pull someone over and they look at a they look at a big stack of drugs and they say, "Well, I'm going to have to get these drugs tested." You know, it's a huge long process, and so cops are just letting drug drug users go many times because the process is too bureaucratic and it's too decriminalized. Well, this this goes beyond putting lipstick on the pig. We're talking about foundation, false eyelashes, certainly lipstick, a little blush, maybe a hairpiece. It's still a pig and it's not going to do anything but rut into the the ground and in the mud. (laughs) And again, the legislature will get away with it. This is an election year, so perhaps people will think more carefully about what they... um, what they or who they support, uh, even though this was a measure that Oregonians supported. Now, this all happened in the in the uh, wake of the Oregon Supreme Court ruling that disqualified 10 uh, Democrat, uh, Republican senators uh, who engaged in that lengthy legislative walkout for principled reasons, I might add, uh, that they cannot seek reelection. Has that or will it likely impact this session? And what does that mean moving forward for these 10 which happen to be pro-life uh, Republicans? Yes. Um, I mean, that's that's very sad. I mean, uh, let's remember the Democrats did their own walkouts, including Governor uh, then then Governor Brown, when she was the state senator, they did walkouts. But now that the Republicans did walkouts, the unions and the big government lobby put up money for a ballot measure saying, yeah, you can't do that anymore. It's, it's you know, when it's one party rule, there is one party that rules the House and the Senate and the, and the governor's office that's the majority. Um, yeah, so I think um, they're probably it's going to be a loss at the ballot box more uh, because these are many longtime senators. They're not going to be able to run again. And that's sad. And and you can see that, that the capital is going in the wrong direction. There's another bill that someone proposed. It says, let's give food stamp benefits to hot food, which is basically allowing them to go to a grocery store and pick up a hot pizza or French fries or hot dogs, and it's like 
no, that's not what we want our food stamps to go for. You can already buy Doritos and steak mm-hmm. and ice cream cakes. Let's not include hot serviced food, which costs more, and there's a lot more unhealthy stuff when you're talking about you know, buying hot dogs and pizza over the counter. That's not what we think when it comes to food stamps. And it, like I said, this is it's not going to get anyone out of poverty if you're writing them $1,000 monthly checks and you're saying you can get free pizza. Yeah, it's just going to increase their, their girth and keep us in the same situation. <laughs> yeah. Need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Talking with Jason Williams, he's the director of Taxpayers Association of Oregon and OregonWatchdog.com. Great resource for knowing what's going on in the state of Oregon. We'll make sure we uh, let you know how you can connect uh, when we return in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice, uh, continuing my conversation with Jason Williams, Director of Taxpayers Association of Oregon. We're talking about this short legislative session. It's amazing how little time it takes for lawmakers to do big damage, and I think a lot of us are concerned that that may be the case. Although we may have been lulled into a false sense of security that, I mean, how much damage can you do in 35 days? Well, the answer is a lot. Uh, now, we know that there are um, lots of pieces of legislation that will be introduced. And because of the nature of this short session, it means that there are some topics that are going to be left to uh, to next year's session, which is the lengthier session that allows them to do more. De- I mean, make more uh, more con- uh, decisions. Uh, your thoughts on what's likely to be held over until the next legislative session, but is being considered this time around or they'd like to see considered? Well, uh, previously, we talked about them wanting to do a proper statewide property tax to pay for public safety, a problem mm-hmm. uh, that they created with the crime wave. In the same vein, they also have a timber tax to pay for wildfire problems. And it's interesting because in timber in Oregon, the younger trees are the ones that clean the air the best, and the older trees you know, capture less carbon, and they're more likely to create wildfire. So in Oregon, we've created this wildfire because we say you can't cut down trees. They block it uh, at too many uh, avenues. And so now they're trying to say, well, because we have all these wildfires, we don't allow the the timber companies to get in there and harvest as they should. So it creates more wildfires. So now they want to do a timber tax. There's a timber tax bill where it says, hey, well, we're just going to tax if you do the right thing by planting younger trees and harvesting the old trees. We're going to tax you on that, and it will pay for wildfire. So that was another kind of crazy thing where it's like they create the problem, and now they want to tax you for it. Hey, that's job security. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. That's right. And um, there was also a big uh, art, cultural art program bailout where they want to give like $3 million to the Shakespeare Art Festival, which has been – you may not know this. I mean, I grew up going to that festival. It was great. But more recently, they've been injecting like Donald Trump and politics into Shakespeare plays, and they've driven their, their uh, audience away. And now they need millions to bail out because they politicized their their program. And the Portland Art Museum uh, wants more money. And I went to go look at the Portland Art Museum. I like what some of the stuff that they do. But I noticed that they were doing a film screening of the Psycho Beach Party film. It's some crazy, dumb horror film in the year 2000. It's like, is this 
Is this why we're spending millions of tax dollars mm. to go to an art gallery that is that is doing a film showing from called Psycho Beach Party, which is a horror movie? I don't think that's as far from fine art as I can yeah, get. Yeah, right, right alongside the masters. That's where we've, oh, how the mighty have fallen, uh, that this yeah. is considered worthy of uh, that location alongside genuine um, art that's worthy of, of the kind of attention that uh, a museum is yeah, supposed to garner. Maybe someone might be throwing some soup at the film screen there at the Portland <laughs> I art doubt museum. it. <laughs> they only do that for the masters. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let me just ask you, are you optimistic about the direction that I mean, this is kind of a silly question, but well, are you optimistic um, about the direction Oregon is going or that this election will bring us lawmakers and leaders who have Oregonians best interests at heart? Well, um, I kind of predict a lot of chaos and unpredictability this year. I think there are so many things and whatever happens nationally will, will shake up what happens here in Oregon. I think our economy is doing these things that are just very volatile and fragile. Um, and we're seeing with the foreign policy, all of these tripwires uh, happening. We're seeing these huge fights in Congress. Um, I, In a way, I am optimistic, but I think it's going to be uh, a very volatile and chaotic year. Um, because everything is just so so um, so fragile. Now, Oregon, it, it, things seem a little bit calm here because so much money has been coming in to the coffers, record-breaking amounts. So obviously, the kicker, it's like $5 billion over-collected tax surplus is being returned to people in the kicker refund. Uh, and that still, surplus is coming in. People are spending money like crazy. Um, but businesses aren't growing as much, which shows you a little bit of the strange dynamic where consumers, I mean, they're maxing out their credit card, not seen for many times. They're emptying out their savings account. They are so bent on spending, it's booming the economy, which increases taxes, tax revenue, uh, and then the inflation kind of kicks into that too. Yeah. Um, and it's like I, I have a feeling like you cannot – even car default loans are going up. So there's something about our economy is breaking records, but it's because people are spending every last penny that they have. Yeah. And I, I don't see that going for the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, Jason, I, I know that um, Taxpayers Association of Oregon is a great resource for me personally, and I want to make sure our listeners are aware of uh, that resource. I consult OregonWatchdog.com regularly, OregonTaxNews.com. W- where can folks connect and, and keep up with what's going on in the Oregon legislature and in the state of Oregon in general? Well, uh, OregonWatchdog.com is a daily top 10 news ticker and Oregon Catalyst. Dot com is a um, kind of a coalition blog of uh, like-minded, freedom-friendly organizations. So Oregon Watchdog and Oregon Catalyst are really uh, great places that will let you know what's happening in Oregon. All right. And I would uh, certainly recommend that for those who want to know what's going on and to hold those who are making decisions about our future, our economy, and so on, hold them accountable. Hey, Jason, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Jason Williams is the director of Taxpayers Association of Oregon. 
Uh, and he also oversees OregonWatchdog.com. OregonCatalyst.com is another great resource for information on what's happening here in the state of Oregon. All right. Well, we are just about out of time here at the end of the show. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow on the program, we'll spend some time taking a look at the uh, weekend in head or the weekend headlines, the lighter side of the news, and we'll share this week's Christian outlook. So I hope you'll join us. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.